There are those who think the boomer generation had all the jam, and to some extent, they're right. Hello, I'm Richard Paul Jones, PJ to my friends, and welcome to All the Jam, a podcast of nonsense from a life lived on the fringes of rock and roll and other places. I don't know who Ian was, or even if his name was Ian. It might have been James, and his second name might have been something like Chick. But I think he had a girlfriend who lost her backstage pass at a show in 1967. That's because I found it, and on the back is a scroll, which I think says Ian's Chick, but it may not. Regardless, I happily abused it, wandering around the dressing rooms and onto stages without being stopped. It just felt so much better than being in the audience. I wanted more of it, and as time went by, what I wanted most was to go on tour. But over the next few years, despite hanging out with Musdome mates, driving them to gigs, and helping out where I could, the entry point to the world of touring rock star excess eluded me. And as is the case with most people involved in the performing arts, I was forced to work for a living. Sometimes the thing you're looking for waits until you stop looking before it decides to grace you with its presence. And getting on my first tour was a pure fluke. My mate Johnny had bought an old Harrods delivery van. We used it to move all sorts of stuff for all sorts of people to all sorts of places, mostly household removals through an agency in Notting Hill. The area was not the gentrified glitterati money pit it is today. In the 1950s, it had been where London Beats and Bohemians hung out and did their best to undermine the foundations of the establishment. And it continued being a breeding ground for the counterculture through the 60s and into the 70s. The slum conditions led to empty properties, which in turn led to squatting and homes for anti-establishment individuals and organisations of all kinds. In the 70s, these included the publications Oz and the International Times and the Drug Advisory Service release. It also housed the agency that supplied most of our work, a sort of hippie employment bureau which rejoiced in the name Gentle Ghost. We would phone them to see what they had for us, and there was usually something. Being the sort of organisation it was, and being where it was, the jobs tended to be low rent and often had a sense of desperation about them, and some jobs were so rank that we carried a bottle of disinfectant in the cab to use as hand wash. And sometimes they would call us, but these were the days before mobile phones, and they usually called Johnny as he lived at his parents' home and had a phone. I was living in a squat and didn't. But I had given them my dad's number, as I'd go round there from time to time to collect mail, raid the fridge and wash in hot water. And one day I was at my dad's house and the phone rang while I was in the bath. And I thought, typical, and couldn't be asked to answer. But it kept ringing. And then I thought, it might be a friend, or work, but I'll never make it in time. And it kept ringing. Then I thought how much I would regret it if I found out later that it was something important. But they'll hang up before I get there. And it kept ringing. And then I thought, fuck it, I'll give it a go. They might just not hang up, and I might just make it. And they didn't. And I did. And it was Gentle Ghost. They asked if I was available for a ten-day job. Rather hesitantly, I said, yes, and asked what it was. They said it was loading and unloading trucks. I wasn't overly enthused, as that's what I'd been doing anyway, and I really hated it. Then they said it paid £100 a week, plus food and accommodation. And this started to sound interesting. I'd been scraping by on less than £20 a week for what seemed like eternity, and it was difficult to imagine what I wouldn't do for £100 a week. Yep, I said, where and when. 
They said I had to meet a car at London Bridge Station in an hour. I was standing in the hall, naked and dripping on the carpet, and it was a 20-minute walk to the nearest tube station, and then 10 stops on the Northern Line. I said, no problem, and got the barest details required to meet the client and hung up. I had no change of clothes, just enough cash for the tube fare, and no idea that this was the day I'd been waiting for for so long. I arrived at London Bridge Station and found the car, a turquoise Hillman Hunter estate. There were four blokes in it, and I was relegated to the middle of the rear seat, the worst and most uncomfortable seat in any car. Introductions were quickly made, and we headed off across London Bridge towards the city. And before we had crossed the bridge, the prospect of spending the whole of the journey in the middle seat took on a new and portentous air. I'd asked the question, so, where are we going? And tried to take the single word response in my stride. Glasgow. For anyone unfamiliar with the geography of Great Britain, that was a 400-mile drive on British roads in the 1970s. My role, along with Paul, who was sitting next to me, was to be a humper and involved unloading and reloading an arctic containing the PA, lights and set for the UK leg of Cat Stevens' ludicrously named Bamboozle Tour. I don't remember the details of the drive to Glasgow, in fact, I only remember some isolated details of the whole tour. The principal one being how big an articulated truck is and how long it takes two blokes to empty it and fill it back up in the days before venues had local crew. It was a brutal introduction to many things, most of them either uncomfortable or actually painful. The Glasgow gig was at the Apollo Centre, which had previously been the infamous Green's Playhouse and would, in 1987, be a pile of rubble. You could tell it had once been greens by looking at the carpet. Where it wasn't threadbare were dark red swirls of what might once have been a paisley pattern. The carpet was spattered with the legend, It's good, it's greens, written at jaunty angles every few steps. I like the understatedness of the word good. It was not great, just good. Obviously no need to get carried away with Sassanek hyperbole here. The Apollo audience had a fearsome reputation. If the act was not going down well, extreme long-distance aggression was about the best they could hope for, and outright violence was not unknown. But the management had a plan. These days, offenders would be identified and banned, or prosecuted, or both. In 1974, the management simply raised the stage about ten feet off the floor, which was considered to be above the maximum climbing height of a drunken Glaswegian and they would have to be quite fit and have a good aim to be able to hit the band with a can of McEwan's lager from the stalls. To add to the joy, the venue had been designed as a cinema and didn't have a backstage loading dock. Everything had to come in through the auditorium, which of course meant that we had to push and carry the stupidly heavy boxes from the truck to the entrance, up the steps, through the lobby and down the aisle between the seats the whole thing being rounded off with a strength-sapping lift ten feet onto the stage. Never mind, we thought, it's down on the way out. But of course everything had to be pushed back up the aisle, and this was a venue for four and a half thousand, and it was one very long, very stickily carpeted aisle. An experience made that much worse, knowing that the band and the rest of the crew were lashing it up in the hotel bar. Much earlier, after the load-in, I'd had little to do, and while I should have got some rest, I went for a wander. The Apollo was a substantial building with dozens of stairways. I started up one which seemed to go on forever, 
I opened the fire door at the top, expecting to find myself on the roof, but no, I was in a 1,500-capacity ballroom. This was lunchtime and there were no dancers, but there were ranks of white-suited men lunging, kicking and stamping in response to the orders barked at them by their karate instructor. Bloody hell, I thought. I hope this isn't the audience. Back at stage level, I couldn't quite shake off the idea that 40 feet above our heads was this massive room designed for elegant couples to glide across the sprung dance floor, not several hundred people leaping up and down with excessive gusto, and these were people practising an art which was usually demonstrated by breaking concrete blocks with their bare hands. I wondered how strong the building was, and whether gravity might be weaker in the north. Appreciation of Sir Isaac Newton's theory of gravity as a constant was not my strong point, let alone gravity being a feature of curves in space-time and don't even start on the spanner thrown in the works by quantum physics. But as it turned out, we were safe, and the building would stand up until it was pulled down over a decade later. The tour proceeded to London via Newcastle, Liverpool and Oxford. After the Oxford show, we were waiting outside the backstage loading bay when a girl from the audience asked for my autograph. She was convinced I was Alan Davis, a guitarist with Cat Stevens' band. I explained that I was just crew and the band didn't tend to hang out around the back of theatres to load trucks, but she insisted she knew who I was better than I did, and kept on asking for the autograph. Eventually I relented and signed the proffered album. I didn't know Alan was spelt A-L-U-N, and had an E in the surname. The girl stomped off, muttering something which amounted to her mistake being my fault. And on reflection, we are kind of similar, and her mistake was understandable, but if I had been Alan, why would I have pretended not to be? But hey, that's fans for you. you got to love them. And after all, they do keep us in work. In London, we did two nights at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. This was to be the end of my all-too-brief initiation into the world of rock and roll touring. As an aside, some of you may not consider Cat Stevens to be a rock and roll performer, and in an absolute sense, you may have a point. Although it's fair to say that some of the set did meet the criteria of guitars, drums, a 4-4 beat and a lot of attitude. But rock and roll isn't just a style of music. It's a state of mind, a way of life. It's the hectic schedule and overnight drives, the ethos of the show must go on, the close-knit touring crew, the after-show partying, and the excesses of all sorts that don't depend on the type of music. And whatever you call it, I wanted more. After the load-in at Drury Lane, the tour manager said something which suggested that he thought I was going to go to Europe with them. I was non-committal until he said, just don't forget your passport, to which I responded along the lines of, heaven forfend, what do you think I am, some sort of idiot? In fact, I think I said, yeah, no problem. But there was a problem, it was quite a big one. I didn't actually have a passport, and we were booked on a ferry in three days' time. To get my first passport today, I would have to get the photos, go online, fill in forms, get a digitised, notarised confirmation of my identity, prove that my parents were British, and most painfully stump up 85 quid for the passport and then pay another large bribe to the post office so that once issued, they could lose it super quick somewhere between Cardiff and London. There's no way I would have got on that ferry these days. But as is becoming something of a mantra, they were simpler times. And there was an answer, a quick trot down Drury Lane, along the Strand, down Whitehall, and a bit of a wiggle through the back of St James's Park brought me to the strangely named street Petit France and the London Passport Office, 
which is no longer. Here I was able to get the necessary forms and the two photos required as they had a photo booth. My first passport photo shows me with shoulder length hair, wearing a t-shirt which looks cleaner than it has any right to be, under a ragged Levi jacket and trying to look serious. I spent the next few hours belting back and forth on the underground and finally had the photos and forms signed and got them back to the passport office before closing. The next afternoon I was back to collect what I saw as a pass to a glamorous life of international touring and all that it promised. The clerk at the desk had filled in my details on the passport and asked me to confirm my occupation as driver. I said, and humper, and that's what he added in dark blue ink. He didn't ask what humping involved, but I suspect he had mixed feelings about it, and to some extent he was right. Suffice to say, a couple of days later, I was on a ferry to Copenhagen via Gothenburg, where I'd experienced the joys of the open sandwich, which until that moment I would have called a piece of bread with something on it, a lot of driving on the wrong side of the road, and the international naughtiness which attracted me to the business in the first place. But that's another story for another time. Well, that's all the jam for the time being. You'll find a link to some photos of people and places mentioned at allthejam.blogspot.com and there should be a link to it on the page where you found this podcast. I'll be opening the jar to see what nonsense from the fringes of rock and roll and other places I can scrape out again soon. Meanwhile, take care, look after yourself, look after your friends.